It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. The Buckeye Breakdown Podcast continues the day before Ohio State and Oregon. It's arguably the biggest game in the country this week. We are really excited to break it down for you, previewing the matchup, diving into some key players and some matchups to watch, and maybe even taking a slightly bigger look at at the uh, college football picture to figure out what other games, what other teams this weekend could possibly have an impact on the national championship chase. I'm Brendan Gulick, glad to be joined by our two uh, football analysts for Buckeyes Now, Tommy Zagorski and Pat Cavanaugh. have put out some really good stuff here this past week at the site. Hope you'll check that out along the way. Guys, this is a fun one here. I think we're getting ready for a game that, uh, in a lot of ways, we've probably been looking forward to for two years because th- this game was canceled last year. Um, historically, Ohio State's played really well against Oregon. There's some fun storylines. Obviously, they haven't played each other since the national championship game in, in January of 2015. Um, but two defending conference champions that certainly think they've got a chance to you know, have a, a similar kind of season here in 2021. Absolutely, Brendan. You're looking at two really, really powerful teams with uh, a great track record um, with different various sides of football uh, that complement each other. That's going to be fun to watch this weekend uh, with the godfather of the RPO, Joe Moorhead, coming down to the banks of the Olentangy. Um, It's going to be an exciting one to watch. Yeah, I think what's going to be interesting, you know, Ryan Day alluded to in the press conference, it's been 600 days since they've been able to host 100,000 people in the shoe. So we got Oregon coming into town. The interesting thing here is the Buckeyes have had some rest, certainly playing Minnesota on Thursday, not having to travel, whereas Oregon played uh, this past Saturday, have to come on the road and and play in a a, a location with 100,000 fans, double of what they're used to in their home field. So I definitely think it's going to be interesting to see what the noise level um, is created by uh, with the fans. And uh, Day mentioned how he's hopeful that, the uh, duck offense has to go silent count. We all know what that can do from an advantage standpoint um, when, when the teams have to go silent count. So certainly having uh, everybody back in the shoe and, uh, you know, recruits back on campus to be able to watch the game. I just think that the energy level will be very, very different. And again, that those 600 days couldn't have gotten here any sooner. No doubt about that. That, you know, it brings up a great point. I definitely wanted to hit here early on. Tommy, I, I know you've spent uh, a lot of time on the sideline and in some particularly loud environments uh, in, in some of the bigger cathedrals in college football. Can, can you give me a sense of, of literally exactly what it's like when you are struggling to communicate with players because you've got 80, 90, 100,000 people making life difficult? Fans, I think, can, can identify with that concept, but from, from a coach's standpoint, how hard is that, and, and how do you try to overcome that? Well, you know, going into practice that week, and, and everyone does this now in college football. We started doing this a couple of years back. You simulate crowd noise. You simulate you have periods that are legitimately – you're playing the loudest, most obnoxious noises you've ever heard in your life. I can vividly remember coaching at the University of Tennessee. I'm trying to teach a freshman left tackle how to take his set uh, in 95-degree heat. And as that's going on, I have a baby crying, cars crashing, every type of annoying noise you could possibly think of. Um, that was sometimes the circus that was practice. And and, and you hear that. And, and what it was, was it was actually genius by Coach Jones, Coach Butch Jones, 
because what it did was it prepared you for those moments. And little did I know, two weeks later, we'd be playing Oklahoma, led by Baker Mayfield in front of 102,455 people skiing Rocky Top for four hours straight uh, until the moment where Baker Mayfield tied the game to send us an overtime and you could hear a pin drop in Neyland Stadium. So it's when you're on that sideline, you're trying to calm those guys down. You're trying to look them in the eye. You're trying to make sure you can hear them. It's so loud sometimes. Guys on the headset, you can't hear the other coaches. And you're running over and you're like in their ear like, hey, what? You know, like you're trying to get stuff in. Um, And like Pat alluded to in the beginning, not only the silent cadence, but also a lot of stuff we do is nonverbal. You know, we talk about communication in football, being verbal and visual. You're going to see a lot of signs. You're going to see offensive linemen holding hands to work on cadence. You're going to see different ways where literally you're holding the hand of the other guy and you're grabbing onto it to let him know, hey, we're going to snap the football. You're looking at different verbal keys and visual keys to be able to do that. And that's really what's going to happen for, you know, Oregon this weekend. Um, they, they don't play in an environment like this. There's no place in the Pac-12. That's going to have this, and and there's something about walking into that, st- walking into Ohio State. Ohio State, it's one of the loudest environments on the planet, and to be able to do this, it's also going to be difficult for some of these young guys that are playing for Ohio State. They've never played in front of this. Those seven new starters, some of those guys have never had the experience to walk out and get the chills of wearing that scarlet and gray and look up and see a hundred thousand plus people screaming that are passionate and ravenous about what your performance looks like. Um, it's going to be an exciting event for them. I'm glad they had the Minnesota. Um, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to speak ill of it, but you know, 55,000 people on a Thursday night raining opposed to, you know, like Pat said in the beginning, 600 days since the, one of the greatest fan bases on the history of sports, it's an opportunity to cheer these guys on. Uh, but no, it's going to be, I'm sure Ryan Day has done a great job of getting these guys prepared for what it's going to be, what it's going to look like. Um, I wouldn't even be shocked if they had a sports psychologist come in and walk these guys through it. Close your eyes, visualize what it's going to look like when you're in that uniform. You walk out that tunnel and you get to look up and see that. Um, Oregon's going to be doing the exact same thing uh, to prepare themselves as well. Um, and at the end of the day, as a coach, you're going to tell your guys to play your game. Those guys don't matter. They do matter a little bit when you can't hear what you're trying to do. I uh, I specifically asked Ryan Day yesterday about the emotions of the game. And basically, you know, there's there's obviously a ton of adrenaline. There's adrenaline before you start every game. Uh, but the, the unique circumstances around finally coming home, I think the official number is 657 days since they last played uh, Oklahoma. Or, I'm sorry, Oklahoma, since they last played Penn State. I'm thinking back, uh, the Buckeyes have won 23 consecutive games at home, dating back to a loss against Oklahoma in 2017 which yesterday happened to be the uh, four-year anniversary of. Um, but talking to Ryan Day yesterday about, yeah, you know, sometimes you just have random things right at your at your fingertips. <laughs> I mean, Brandon, we're talking about a – you're saying uh, the anniversary of – I mean, the anniversary of a loss. To I mean, Ohio State fans, let's take this in for a second. We haven't lost in four years. years. This is a phenomenal thing, and I don't you know, knock on wood, we don't want to speak of it ill uh, with what's going on tomorrow. So Ryan Day was basically uh, saying, hey, you know, you, you, you have to uh, recognize and embrace the emotions of the game. You can't let the emotions of the game play you. Um, and obviously, when you're on your home field, you know, there's there's an element of you can dictate to some capacity what that uh, noise level is like. You know, if you're playing well, you're going to have the crowd behind you. If, if you're not playing well. You know, it, it, it you might hear more rumblings, um, but I, I know that there's uh, an awful lot of pent up anxiety ready for this one. Uh, and even beyond that, guys, it's just going to be so much fun to be down there and, and see Fox Big Noon kickoff and tailgating and, and you know, 
be back in a in a city that is ready to host a football game again because god it was just so weird last year when you come onto campus on a saturday and you're like well kickoffs in three hours and it's a ghost town you know it's that really was it was pretty weird and uh i'm i'm really excited for that atmosphere again and i i Certainly hope everybody around Ohio State's fan base takes a moment, whether you're at the game, tailgating at home, just kind of take a moment to appreciate the fact that, like, okay, this is some sense of normalcy. Things aren't perfect yet. Certainly getting there. Pat, why don't we dive into some of the scouting reports? I know you uh, you had put a, a couple of scouting reports together and um, talked about a couple of the key players, and and I know you probably have a couple key matchups in mind that, that uh, you're looking for. Yeah, the first thing I think I'd like to talk about a little bit is the the Buckeye offensive line, and I'm going to be watching them very closely because when I look back to their game against Minnesota, the offense only ran 48 plays. So total 48 plays. Those big boys up front are going to be well rested. And, and one of the things that I noticed in the Minnesota game is you know the Buckeyes have a pretty fast tempo offensively, but those big fellas didn't look tired at all. And and I think that's a testament today and. And Mickey Marotti, the strength and performance coach, as to what they do to get their players ready to go. Uh, but, you know, they average 6'5, 320 up front. Oregon's going to throw a variety of looks at them. But I think um, Coach Day and the offense are really going to come out and try to run Big Ten football and establish the run early and often. Certainly, the balance they have with Garrett Wilson and Olave on the back end is going to create some challenges for the Oregon secondary. And, and you know, we've, we've talked about them all week. Um, Kayvon Thibodeau, uh, he's been day-to-day, um, but you know the, the Buckeye offense is going to need to know where he's at at all times. But I think if they can establish the run and, and create uh, momentum at the line of scrimmage, the point of attack with those big fellows up front and run their, their style of football early, early and often, I think it's going to certainly pay off for them in the long run and then sprinkle in some play action because the deep threat of Wilson and Olave is, is for real. When, when you have two uh, first-round draft picks um, – on each side, it just creates some really difficult matchups. Uh, and I think the Oregon defense are, knows that. Um, I think uh, they're going to try and set some different fronts and bring pressure from different areas, especially with the freshman quarterback in a, in a stadium that's, uh, you know, his first time playing uh, in front of 100,000. Uh, so it's going to be a great matchup. But I think in many cases it comes down to blocking and tackling and the blocking up front by the Buckeye offensive line will be the first key that I'm going to be looking closely at uh, because they're so strong, athletic, and as I mentioned, um, in really good shape. And I think that will pay off as it gets to the fourth quarter. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, you know, the offensive line had a great game against Minnesota. Uh, they only played 48 snaps and uh, they're going to be ready to go. And, and usually when you're a powerful team, Big Ten football alluded to earlier, you set the tone with your guys up front. Everyone's going to look for it. Every coach in America talks about their guys up front. Uh, Ryan Day invests in those guys. They've done a tremendous job recruiting some really high-level guys, um, and they've done a tremendous job of developing those young men um, into where they're at. Not many teams have guys that could start at tackle at every other team in their conference playing guard for them. Um, and I think that athleticism is going to be something that's really special uh, for this unit. In addition to that, also, uh, watching the Fresno State game against Oregon, I mean, Fresno State had a tremendous game plan in the second half, a lot of unbalanced sets, um, they got, you know, kind of Oregon out of it. And when you go attack that defense, that 3-4 defense, what that 3-4 defense wants to do is they want to be balanced. They want to give you a balanced look across the board where they can bring different exotic blitz pressures without tipping their hand. 
And what Fresno State did a phenomenal job of was getting an unbalanced set, getting in an empty, making these guys declare what they can do. Um, and, and I wouldn't be shocked if we got if Ohio State this weekend got into a little bit of empty, um, especially to let these receivers go eat. They didn't really have the opportunity to do that against Minnesota um, as much. But I, I do think that it's being able to paint that picture, being able to look at it. Um, you know, and, and Pat, like you wrote earlier this week, our stable of running backs, this is when they need to go have a day. You're going to put them up behind those offensive linemen, keep Anthony Brown and the offense of Oregon off the field because they are going to try to, you know, they are going to try to go deep over Ohio State. They're going to try to attack the secondary. We'll talk about that in a second. But what I really think that's special about this unit is their ability to block, their ability to stay on people. And if you see that relentless effort um, across the board, um, I think it could be a really, really productive day for Ryan Day and, and the Buckeye offense. The uh, offensive line, I know we've talked about a couple of times, but uh, some numbers to back up their their quality of play. Um, in, in what I believe is a second career start, I believe Dewan Jones started against Michigan State last year, but obviously first start of the season and and the first start since you know he's sort of burst onto the scene as an emerging guy for the Buckeyes. Uh, the the giant right tackle for Ohio State was graded out as the highest offensive tackle in Power Five football by PFF College this past weekend. He, he got a ninety four point four grade. You know, for, first start comes out and, and just absolutely rocks it. Um, and then beyond that, for the first time since the Michigan game in 2018, Ohio State didn't give up a sack. Um, Z, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if they had a negative play from scrimmage. They did not. And a lot of that is, you know, predicated in, and we talked about this last week, is the ability to, A, establish the line of scrimmage on the other side of the football, being able to make sure that you protect your quarterback and keep him clean. And the running backs did not have negative yards rushing. When you look at that stat total uh, after a game, it's one of those things you get that stat sheet at halftime, you get the stat sheet after the game. As a coach, it's one of the things you're looking at are, are there negative runs? Like, can we keep running the football? Uh, can we continue to do that? And I think it's really important to see that. Um, and, and kudos to Tony Alford having those backs ready uh, in a big environment like that to be able to just say, hey, get north and south, go get a couple yards, and we'll live to see another down. How about the uh, the Buckeyes broke a school record against Minnesota, averaging 10.3 yards per play? I'm sure some of that was, uh, you know, the, the fact that you have a couple of these giant explosive plays and some of that also probably predicated on only running 48 plays. The more plays you run, the harder it is to maintain an average like that. But still, I mean, guys, that's ridiculous. Averaging a first down every time they snap the ball, you're, you're not going to lose a football game if you do that. No, and if they can do it this weekend, they'll be really, really happy with the outcome on national TV. Pat, how about on the other side? You know, maybe the uh, you know the the Oregon offense. Um, look, CJ Verdell is legit. He, he, in fact, he and Travis Dye combined career rushing yards have more combined rushing yards uh, than any other one-two punch in Division One FBS football. You know, they're balanced. They've got experience. Verdell, for sure, is is you know, a little bit more going to carry the heavy load out of those two. Um, but can they run the ball effectively against the Buckeyes? Yeah, I think what they're going to try and do is is establish the run as much as they can. And and I think, as you mentioned, that the, the backs, they can make that first guy miss. And what we've also found is they can make that second guy miss. Um, and when you have guys like that, as a defensive coordinator, what you are really emphasizing during the week and leading up to the game is what we often call the tackling circuit, where coaches will get together in different position groups and work on form tackling, working on open field tackling, um, breaking down your hips, getting in position and talking a lot about 
open field tackling. And, you know, I think um, in looking back to what Fresno did, as Tommy alluded to it, I think they, they did a pretty nice job on Anthony Brown. It's a big athletic kid who had a big run at the end of 30, 30 yards. But other than that, the other 15 carries, he only averaged 2.2 yards a carry. So I think the Buckeye defense is certainly looking at what Fresno did, the looks they gave. And really, if, if, if some of these longer plays that Oregon made were, were uh, initial tackles, that second threat wouldn't have happened as far as breaking through on those long runs. So uh, the Buckeye D is certainly going to try and minimize those big chunk plays that offenses are trying to do, um, put them in situations third and long where they got to throw the rock potentially. Um, I mentioned this in the scouting report. Um, Oregon offense was one for six on third and six or longer. So as a defensive coordinator, you're paying close attention to that and trying to win first and second down as much as you possibly can. And, um, you know, again, uh, Ryan Day alluded to this on third down when they're on defense, they're going to want the crowd to get as loud as they possibly can. So, um, you know, that student body who hasn't been in the game uh, in the shoe in a while is going to be amped up and ready to go. Um, and I can expect probably some really tailgating happening um, in Columbus and, and ready to get through those gates and get in their seats. Absolutely. You know, Pat, one of the best things I've ever learned in coaching is the best way to be a great third down offense or defense is stay out of it. Be successful on first and second down. That's the biggest thing that they can do. Um, and especially with you know Joe Moorhead, who I alluded to in the opening, is one of the best minds in college football. I don't think people give him his due credit. Um, the guy really kind of invented the RPO um, at the collegiate level, and it dates back to his time at the University of Akron. I, I heard Joe talk about this many a times. I believe the year was 2002. Um, he's coached with J.D. Brookhart, and they're playing Miami, and they said, why don't we run a stick with the tight end off of this and read it for the run? And they hit the stick, and they're like, wait a second, what are we on to here? And this is kind of the infancy of this RPO game uh, that we're going to see, and, and that's where he's going to weigh his head um, on that RPO game thing. You know, Coach Moorhead's going to really go attack that and be able to go do that. Two things for the Black Eyes that I really think are important this weekend, and I wasn't at the Woody, but I can guarantee you they stressed fundamentals fundamentals of tackling, fundamentals of running to the football, rallying behind people, and knocking these great backs down. Um, last weekend, uh, the Buckeyes did not look like a great tackling football team. And a lot of times coming out of training camp, you're trying to find that magical elixir. Can we tackle? Can we not tackle? How do we get to that? And I, I think that this weekend and this having that extra day of practice to get ready for Oregon, I think it gave the Buckeyes the ability to be a better tackling football team this weekend. And it's something that they're going to really stress and emphasize. And they're going to take a lot of pride in. You're going to see silver helmets run into the ball, getting ready to go. Um, it's going to be exciting to see that. And then also putting these young secondary in, in, in binds at times. And there's going to be times where the guys are going to do exactly what their coach should do, but the RPO is going to be able to read past them. You know, we're, they're going to read an inside linebacker on the backside. They're going to read an inside linebacker on the front side. They're going to read the front side defensive end, the backside defensive end, potentially a four eye or a three technique, depending on how they line up with the when they get into their three four defense. It's going to be a great matchup to see. Um, and the other thing that I saw in the Minnesota game is the Buckeyes were not really accounting for Tanner Morgan on the ground at all. Uh, Tanner Morgan had the ability, if he would have pulled a couple times, could have probably extended some plays for Minnesota. Um, this weekend, they are definitely going to account uh, for the running air for uh, for Anthony Brown and getting him um, under wraps. And like you said, he had one explosive run. They were 2.2 yards. So they're going to watch that blueprint. Uh, the DNs are going to be curious, are going to be cautious of it. The safeties are going to be cautious of it. Um, linebackers are. And I'm really looking to see a fundamentally sound tackling defense um, to really set the tone early uh, against a team who prides themselves 
on being a physical football team. Mario Cristobal is an old, old lineman. Um, and every one of us think that we're physical people. And I know that's what he's going to come in. He's going to try to out-physical this team on Saturday. And um, I think at the end of the day, it's going to come down to fundamentals and technique for the Buckeyes. Anthony Brown's an interesting guy because you can definitely see some ability there. Um, you know, his, his college career has kind of bounced all over the place a little bit. Um, he's obviously he's a, he's a high school kid from New Jersey. He took a redshirt freshman uh, season in 2016 when he was at Boston College. So this is his sixth year in college football. Uh, played in the Boston College program for a couple years, dealt with an injury, transferred to Oregon, uh, only played in, in two games last year, and then basically it's, it's you know, his team this year. Um, and I think there's some level of like, man, when you're around college football for six seasons, you develop a, a level of experience that, you know, maybe not a, a whole lot of guys have a chance to do. Um, I think that sixth season is some has something to do with with COVID from last year and, and everybody getting an extra year and, you know, the 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 early red shirt and the injury. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to have six seasons anyways. But, you know, you're, you're talking about a guy that's got some maturity and not just a you know, a, a kid fresh out of high school either. Um, so I, I think Oregon should have some stability in, the, uh, some stability in their offense. I, I guess the question here, because we've, we've brought up the secondary a couple of times, as an offensive coordinator and, and with what Joe Moorhead's style is, how do you try to balance the desire to run the ball because you've done that so well with Verdell and Dye historically versus – trying to attack a Buckeye secondary that if you if you try to identify a weak point of the defense, that might be it. Yeah, Brent, I think, you know, in thinking about Moorhead's press conference, he talked about how aggressive he wants to be and take shots downfield. And, and part of that is the deception of what you're actually doing within the RPO. And I think that the beauty of RPO is putting the defense in a position where they don't know what's happening and being off balance. And so I think – um, you know, when teams self-scout themselves, they really try to dig into like any tendencies that they are showing um, so they can combat them because they know the defense is scouting them and their particular tendencies and, and what they're looking to do. So I, I, I can anticipate that Oregon's going to be very aggressive. You know, he talked about taking shots down the field. Their big score before halftime, um, the, the receiver at the bottom was inside the, the numbers and they just ran a whole shot, a fade, and the, the ball was perfectly thrown but there was press coverage with no safety help over the top. And whether that was pre-snap read or actually uh, Brown going through his progressions, I don't know, but I can think, I can think we'll, we'll see a lot more of that where he's going to try and stretch the field, push the ball down, especially when they get in situations like third, medium, third and long. But um, you know, when, when I think about what Oregon did offensively, they played with a real short field in the first half. There was two fumbles early on in the first quarter that that led to quick scores and being up 14-0. And then they didn't score again until right before half on that, that fade route I mentioned. And then really going into the second half, they didn't score until about seven or eight minutes to go in the fourth quarter. So if the Buckeyes can get up on them early, I think it's still interesting to, to find out what this Oregon offense looks like. You know, what, what are they going to show come Saturday? And certainly the elements, the noise, everything that we can expect in the shoe will play to the Buckeyes' advantage, um, especially when, when the Ducks are on offense. So, um, again, the aggressiveness coming from uh, the Duck offense, I think we can expect that early. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're going to try and go deep um, as, as much as they possibly can or as much as the Oregon or the, the Buckeye defense challenges them with it. 
I wouldn't be shocked to see Joe Moorhead in the uh, Oregon offense take a page out of the Ryan Day playbook. Max protect six, seven guys in the protection uh, and let these guys go work um, as wide receivers. Um, just to think about it for a second, I listened to Chris Olave speak earlier this week. Um, and this is, you know, kind of in this topic. I think they'd like to have him at wide receiver, whoever the receivers coach was in 2018 on the recruiting trail, not to go offer that kid a scholarship. <laughs> I was looking back going, holy smokes. I think I was swinging a miss on that one. Uh, but, but realistically, I, I think you see, that Joe Moorhead offense, and I've heard Coach Moorhead speak about this, he calls it a Chipotle offense. And the reason he calls it a Chipotle offense, you go to Chipotle, there's only a couple different ingredients there at the table, but you can make it at 8 million different things. And that's really what that RPO gives you, um, you know, the flexibility and the ability. Um, and they have answers on their call sheet. They're going to look at their call sheet and say, all right, Ohio State's going to go one high, or they're going to do this, or they're going to do this, they're going to roll down here, they're going to roll down here. He's going to have answers on his call sheet to do it. It's whether or not they can execute uh, and be able to do it. And like you said, Pat, I think that if the Buckeyes can jump out early, you're going to put Oregon in a very, very uncomfortable situation where they're going to have to drop back. They're going to have to protect. You're going to let, you know, you're going to let Harrison, you're going to let Haskell, you know, let this defense, maybe even Sawyer has this coming out game that all the Buckeye fans are hoping for and looking for to have somebody come off the edge, go make plays, force these offensive linemen to go pass set. Because every offensive lineman in America, when they come out of the huddle and they're like, oh, it's a it's a seven step uh, with a um, you know, pure progression read. Oh, I'm really excited about that to go protect for you know four or five seconds and try to against these werewolves that are coming off the defensive line. So it's going to be an interesting, an interesting day for these guys. They want to establish the run. Joe Moorhead's going to try to stay ahead of the stay ahead of the sticks. He's going to call these RPOs because those RPOs are their explosives built in. That's where they have them. When they're cultivating that call sheet, which they probably finished up you know, two days ago, and now they're just working on it as they're, as they're getting ready to get into, into town, he's going to make sure that he keeps those offensive linemen going forward. And, and that's the beauty of it. And uh, I think that uh, the Buckeyes have a beautiful opportunity to maybe hit a Chris Olave early, you know, hit a Wilson early, you know, maybe get into a little bit of 11 personnel, maybe even a 10 personnel set and, and kind of stretch the field a little bit and challenge those corners early. Um, it's going to be an interesting game. Um, it's two teams that are like-minded, and uh, I really hope that the uh, Ohio State can jump out early. Um, I, I think it's going to be a tough night for uh, a tough day, rather for Oregon. I have never felt more uh, one with Joe Moorhead uh, after the Chipotle comment. You know, that's that's now when you put things in a Chipotle perspective. Now I get it. I understand. <laughs> uh, you know the uh, the the the. Uh, Buckeye offense has so many different weapons, and uh, I, I think there's a good chance that we get a, a chance to see, you know, uh, uh, more variety showcased on uh, on Saturday than we did against Minnesota. If if not for, you know, just the fact that I certainly expect Ohio State to run more than 48 plays, I think that was um, pretty unexpected for a team that's typically up around 70 plays. Uh, but but Z in particular, because I know you've done this a lot, and I'm I'm curious, Pat. Maybe you you have a, a feel for this. Is it harder to go from the West Coast to the Eastern Time Zone to play, or to be an Eastern Time Zone team and go play out west? Uh, Brandon, sorry about that. I was breaking up there. Um, That's yeah, okay. The, uh, from a West to East Coast, um, you know, the rule of thumb you always try to do is when you're traveling, every time zone you give yourself a day. Um, is the old adage. I know in the National Football League they've done that for years. Um, it's even trickled its way into college. Um, that's why you don't see a lot of these, you know, West Coast Pac-12 teams playing a Big Ten team this early in the season. Uh, twofold. One, the guys aren't going to be able to get out of class for two days. That's a tough one to, to go through with your academic coordinators. And then in addition to that, 
um, you know, to get your sleep right, to be able to go through that. You know, Brandon, you were part of a trip with me uh, to Ireland where literally we got off a plane and played a game a day later, um, which I was like, this is one of the worst decisions we've ever made. Um, I, I know that I, I, my, I was this tight. I was a, a not a very happy person going to that game. And then we jumped out 41 nothing, and I go, okay. I think I can exhale right now. Uh, <laughs> Dublin, Ohio, Dublin, Dublin, Ohio, Dublin, uh, Ireland. Uh, but no, it's. It, I think they're going to do that. Um, I don't know what their travel plans were. Um, I'm assuming they came early. I would doubt that they're just going to fly in on Friday to get ready for it. Um, you know, it's a nine o'clock start for them. Eight, eight nine a.m. on their time schedule that they've been on. Uh, one of the beauties of that for them is a lot of teams in college football practice in the morning, and I think that when you see that in teams practice in the morning. Uh, it gives them the opportunity and the ability to be prepared to do this. They're going into a different area. Um, they play games at what would be 11 o'clock our time uh, to 9 o'clock our time, uh, 11 o'clock at night to 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, so they play a gamut of different things. But to bring a team here early, I'm sure Oregon's not excited about the fact they're playing at noon uh, Eastern Standard Time. Uh, but realistically, traveling early, getting the guys adjusted, getting them loose in the morning, getting them adjusted to the timing of it, getting your punt returners and your kick returners out early, um, you know, when you get here to see what the noon sun's going to look like um, in Columbus, Ohio. So they're getting used to fielding balls at that time throughout the day. Um, it's going to be a very interesting way to prepare for this uh, and get these guys ready. But, uh, you know, it's not something they haven't done before uh, from that standpoint. So I think that they'll be prepared for it. It shouldn't be a, a big issue for them, uh, but still you've got to prepare for it and, uh, and make sure you give every advantage to your players so they can perform to the best of their God-given ability on Saturday. Pat, anything to add there? You know, Tom, I think Tommy nailed it. Um, I, I do have a question for Tommy, though. I'm kind of wondering what the post-game uh, celebration was like in uh, in Ireland. I'm kind of curious about what that was like. Do we have time for that? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I, Brendan was there, actually. Um, I went to bed. I, uh, I was jet-lagged terribly. Uh, being a larger gentleman and flying coach over to Dublin, Ireland, for six an hour flight where I'm sitting like this. Um, I, I was not very, uh, I was not very excited after the game was over. I shook hands with people. I took pictures of some of the locals back to the local hotel. Um, and I had a Guinness at the bar at the hotel. And uh, I sat there, I sipped my victory Guinness. I went into my bedroom and I slept until uh, they woke us up the next day to go, uh, go around. So I missed out on the, on the festivities. I can't say that uh, the rest of the team didn't enjoy that trip more than I did. Um, and then I, there were some nights where I had to uh, chase guys down in the hotel to make sure that they were getting ready to uh, to go to bed. But Brendan was Brendan had carte blanche, so he could do whatever he wanted. I couldn't even Brendan on that trip. I was kind of in this perfect role where I wasn't a player, but I wasn't a, a staff member, and I was just sort of trusted to behave. And I did, but I I had a good time. Uh, you know, when when you when you're you know, building up for an event like that. I mean, that game in Dublin between John Carroll and St. Norbert was a couple years in the making. So, yeah, we, we had some fun and, uh, you know, got to see parts of Dublin that were not part of the official traveling party tour. Um, that was uh, it was a good time. We also saw Notre Dame play Navy the next day at Aviva Stadium, which was really cool. Um, had a chance to, uh, to see um, uh, the Gaelic football national semifinal at Croke Park. That was pretty cool. Uh, it was a it was a fun trip, but I don't want to get too far away because I I could talk about that for an awfully long time. That was a that was a really really fun time. Brendan undersold that trip. The highlight of it was not only the John Carroll victory, but that Gaelic football match. I, that was exciting. Watching plumbers and electricians get at it and represent their different you know regional County Mayo versus Dublin. Um, I know Buckeye Nation, and I was like, who cares? But it was awesome. <laughs> there were eighty thousand people at Croke into an environment. I mean, there were 80,000 people there and it was deafening. I mean, it was a phenomenal 
three hours of energy. So, yeah, no, it was, uh, that was a ton of fun. Um, let's think big picture here just for a second, you know, pull away from the Buckeyes and, and talk about some of the other Big Ten teams and, and just the, the general picture in college football at the moment. Might as well start with Michigan and Washington because that, that was a game that when it was scheduled, everybody kind of went, okay, this could be a pretty good game. And now Washington Washington comes to Ann Arbor after losing to Montana. Um, you know, Michigan for for a while here has just had a, a, a brutal run of it. Um, they beat Western Michigan. They should have. Uh, Kate McNamara looked fine. Uh, J.J. McCarthy looked really good in, in the time that he saw. But um, losing Ronnie Bell for the season to an injury is, is sort of the big news out of Michigan. Um, I, I think this is a pretty meaningful game for both teams, but I also think it's lost a lot of the, the luster around it from when that game was originally scheduled. Yeah. I mean, Michigan and, and Jim Harbaugh, I think games like these are, are critical for them to win, you know, especially coming up on the, on the big 10 season, um, you know, beating, um, Western last week, certainly that they're expected to do that. But I think if they can find their rhythm from an offensive standpoint, they're going to be home in Ann Arbor, which is certainly uh, like the shoe, uh, an advantage to them. And, and I think, um, you know, Harbaugh has got to find that rhythm that they can get into and, and really, um, you know, find their identity. I think the past four or five years, um, they haven't really been able to win the, the big one here and there. But uh, as you alluded to with Washington losing, you know, this this game it has a little different magnitude than it would have, um, you know, before last week. So uh, it will be interesting to see what what Wolverine team shows up and uh, what they look to do. I hear you completely, Pat, um, you know, alluding to Jim Harbaugh in Michigan. This is a, in a coaching world. You either write your resume or you write your obituary. And these are those type of games where you start writing your obituary where you don't win against power five teams. Um, yeah. Washington comes in losing to a really good Montana FCS team. And, you know, those are dangerous games when you're when you're a when you're a power five team and go through schedules of an elite FCS team and have them come in and kind of push you around the way Montana did. Um, Washington's going to be ready to go. Um, Nick Rolovich is going to have that team ready to play going into Michigan. But at the end of the day, I just think Michigan's is too much uh, for them going forward. Um, you know, Michigan, Michigan has a lot to prove. Michigan has a group of kids that are coming back who have been embarrassed. All they've heard about is how bad they, they're the worst Michigan team, Michigan era of football um, in the last hundred years and have that difficulty to have that, wear that on your shoulder every day. Uh, these guys are going to look at Washington like they're playing uh, the Green Bay Packers. They're going to be ready to go. They're going to be ready to play. Um, I think they're going to be fast. They're going to be aggressive. Um, and I think Michigan uh, tries to make a little bit of a statement going into Big Ten play saying, hey, this is the type of team we're going to be going forward. How about the Iowa-Iowa State game? It's the only other matchup in the country this week that pins two top 25 teams against each other. Uh, and suddenly this is a game that has a heck of a lot of meaning because uh, if you look at Iowa, after kind of embarrassing Indiana last week in a game that I'm not sure anybody expected to be that lopsided, um, Iowa's gotten off to a great start. Plus, Wisconsin did not play particularly well against Penn State. Minnesota just lost its best offensive player for the season against the Buckeyes, and Northwestern's defense looked like a sieve against Michigan State. Um, maybe, maybe Iowa's the best team in the West. Maybe they now have the inside track to to get into the you know Big Ten West division title conversation uh, and and get to Indianapolis. This could be a huge win for them to to you know solidify them as a top ten team. The other side, you've got a Cyclones team that's lost six straight years in this rivalry, many of those games have been really tight and I'm not sure Matt Campbell's ever had a better team. So I, I really think this could be a, an outstanding game. 
Yeah, this game means a ton to both teams involved. Uh, you know, and look at Iowa and Iowa State. Um, Iowa, you take Ohio State out of it, Iowa's probably the most consistent team in the Big Ten. Every year they're going to run the same type of offense. They've done it for a long period of time with the same formula that they've used for a long period of time. And people on the outside have looked at it and tried to replicate it. Um, but there's something different about it in Iowa City. And, and I think when you see that and you see what the Hawkeyes do, um, you know, against Indiana, Indiana had a couple turnovers that really – you know, hurt them to have, you know, pick sixes, multiple pick sixes in a game. Uh, it puts you in a really tough situation early in a tough environment like Iowa um, gets to play in. And then you flip the card on the other side. Matt Campbell has built Iowa State uh, from the doormat of the Big 12 to, to a top 10 team. And this is his big game. This is a big statement game for his team. They have to go win this game. And the reason I say they have to go win this game is, like you said, Brendan, they've lost six straight to Iowa. They refer to him as the team out east. Like, this is a game that they need to win. And Iowa State is excited about it. They're ready to go. Um, I, I think Iowa's a good team. I'm not going to put them on a pedestal yet. Um, they beat an Indiana team that turned the ball over a lot. Um, but I do like Iowa State in this game to flip the trend. Matt Campbell and the boys get it done. Um, and I, I think that as you're looking at it, um, they're going to use the same formula they've used before. Um, they're going to run the football. They're going to throw short passes. They're going to take a lot of stress off their offensive line. Their defense is playing at an elite level. Um, Matt Rose, who's a kid that is a, a local kid out of uh, Brexville High School, um, is their is there inside linebacker who runs the field really, really well. He's a great tackler, um, and he's going to have an awesome game for these guys. I'm looking forward to seeing them um, flip the culture there, uh, continuing to flip the culture in Cyclone World and get the victory this weekend against Iowa. Pat, will Mercer score against Alabama? <laughs> great question I, I think the better question is how much will alabama score right well yeah. i guess what, the, what what's the line in this game do you know brendan i'm i think i saw 56 and a half uh was this was the um uh the hold on let me let me make sure i get this right i think it was 63 and a half was the over under 56 and a half was the spread yeah, so we could we could ask the question: What will be the score of the first quarter, the second quarter, third quarter? <laughs> when will they hit the spread? Yeah, Alabama. I mean, you want to talk about the standard for for college football, and um, you know, and I think just from from afar, thinking about the culture that Nick Saban has has created, and the different people that he exposes his team to from from speakers and from other coaches, and just. Um, the, the culture and, the, and he speaks so much about the process. And I just, I, I really enjoy what, uh, what Saban has done um, as a fan from afar and his consistency because every year they get new guys that come in and it's like, there's no letdown. Matter of fact, there's times where it's even elevated. Um, so, and I think he's always looking at that next game. So regardless of who they're playing, whether it's Ohio state or Mercer, it, it, the, how they prepare and, and what's expected from a standard and process standpoint, it's going to be the same. They're really focused on themselves and how they can improve each and every day internally, regardless of who their opponent is. And I think, um, you know, as, as I said, he, he really has set uh, the standard for what other college programs measure themselves up against. Absolutely. I mean, that's we all measure ourselves in this profession at what he does. And the great teams, doesn't matter if they're playing number two in the country or if they're playing number 119 in the country, they're going to be prepared to play this game. Um, and, and Saban does this. He gets frustrated and people look at this and go, look at the tyrant that is Nick Saban on the sideline yelling at these guys in the fourth quarter. 
Yeah, because those guys in the fourth quarter that are playing are going to be the future of Alabama football. He's preparing those guys. He understands that every moment, every little thing that you do matters. It matters the way that you tie your shoes in the morning. It matters the way you walk into the facility. It matters the way you do all these different things. And that's his standard. That's the way he does it. He holds people accountable. Um, and he'll be ready to go. Um, I know you said the first half score. Here's what I'm going to go with. I'm going to say the Mercer Bears score in the first half. Here's how. Special teams. Mercer Bears are going to have something dialed up. They're going to be able to have a big return uh, in the special teams game, some kind of inadvertent penalty. Um, it'll set up a 42-yard field goal for whoever their kicker is. It'll be the greatest moment of his life in Tuscaloosa. So I'll, I'll give the Bears three points in that game. Um, and he'll put it on Instagram and remember the moment that he looked up and he kicked the field goal and what turned out to be a very meaningful stuff. Uh, Tommy, Tommy, I love the fact that it's a 42-yarder, too. I mean, it's, it's very specific. There's got to be a line on that in Vegas. Uh, <laughs> How long will the Mercer field goal be? <laughs> uh, you talk about the visualization. You know, no, you, you walk you walk it in the tunnel and you walk out onto the field and you know you're, hey, I'm going to hit a 42-yard field goal today in front of 100,000 people in Bryant-Denny Stadium. <laughs> Uh, let's, uh, let's turn it back to the Buckeyes here before we kind of wrap things up. I, uh, I saw a stat earlier this week. I may have even shared it with you guys. If I haven't, I'm, I'm sorry that I, uh, that I forgot. Um, part of the reason I feel Ohio state is going to win this game all time in program history, Ohio state when scoring 35 points in a game is 343, one and one. They don't lose when they score 35 points. I don't think Oregon's keeping the Buckeyes under 35. So historically, statistically, uh, that's that's a good enough way for me to, to start by saying, I don't care how they get it done. Maybe they get a defensive touchdown. Um, but I, I am inclined to believe that this Buckeye team is going to put up at least five scores. And statistically speaking, that's good enough. Yeah, yeah, Brandon, I would I would agree. And I, and I think the Buckeyes are going to get out to a fast start. I think they're going to be in their home stadium. I think there's going to be a lot of excitement. A lot of energy that's going to come out of their offense. Uh, those big boys up front are going to control the line of scrimmage. Um, you know, Ryan Day talked about the, the strength of their backfield, the ability to rotate guys in and out. I mean, they get three, four guys that can that could play on any other Division One team and and start. And so the ability to have those fresh legs rotated in and out, and then you got two dynamic receivers. And 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 we haven't mentioned him yet, but Jeremy Ruckert, an outstanding tight end who blocks so well in the perimeter but also is good in the pass game. I mean, if I'm a defensive coordinator preparing for the Buckeyes, I'm kind of scratching my head and saying, all right, what can we take away? Um, knowing that when we take that away, they have an answer for it. So um, I, I truly expect Buckeyes to get out to a really fast start, um, be, uh, be very diverse in how they attack uh, the Oregon Ducks D. Uh, but uh, I, it wouldn't surprise me if they get uh, three or four scores in the first half. Yeah, absolutely, Pat. I agree. And I know Michael Wright is a great cornerback, but, uh, you know, two's going to be on two. He's going to have a lot of work. He's not going to be matching up with a normal two. Um, this is this is Superman out on the perimeter. So um, it's going to be an interesting deal. And, and, and you're speaking to my heartstrings, pulling on arguably one of my favorite Buckeyes, uh, Jeremy Ruckert, last week. I couldn't couldn't give him a high enough grade. Uh, he just flashed all over the screen. His effort, his, his passion um, to continue to just drive and, and get moving and rolling. Um, I'm expecting him to do the same thing this weekend um, as well as they start running the football effectively. Um, you know, and Brennan and I talked before this. I, I personally, I think the Buckeyes are going to win big. I think they're going to get out early. I think they're going to score early. Um, 
I think they're going to be physical. I think they're going to be fast. I think they've got a lot to say. Um, you know, I think deep down inside, they're probably a little offended the fact that they're ranked fourth in the. They're not number one or number two in the country right now. And until they get that ranking, until they have that ranking, they solidify it. And they always said trophy at the end of the season. I'm expecting this hungry group of Buckeyes to really set the tone and let Oregon know um, who they are and who the rest of the country needs to know who they are. Because unfortunately, they play great football throughout the year and people poo-poo it because it's against Big Ten opponents. Um, you know, they got Tulsa coming to town next weekend, um, which is, uh, you know, going to be a going to be an interesting game, um, you know, from that standpoint. And, and then they play the Akron Zip. So as you're looking at it, like who they have coming forward uh, down the pike, it's, it's really important for them to have the opportunity um, to make a statement, make a statement to the country. Hey, we're Ohio State. Um, you know, guys, we're, we're excited. We're going to rally around this young quarterback. Uh, and we're going to have a fun, exciting brand of football that our fans are accustomed to and college football is accustomed to. So I expect the Buckeyes to be really, really big, a big win. Um, Brennan said 35 points. Um, Brennan, I would not be shocked if we're somewhere in the upper 40s to even in the low 50s um, with the way that they go and attack this game. I think Ryan Day's got a lot to say in this. Um, and I'd love to know what the one game was that was over 35 points that the Buckeyes tied. I'd love to know <laughs> yeah, the tie, I don't know. I know the loss was the 40 to 35 loss to Clemson in the Orange Bowl uh, back, what was that now, in 2014, I believe. Um, that was the That was the one loss. Yeah, I'd love to know, you know, if there's a history fact checker or something like that, what that what the high octane offenses that were going at it where college football games still ended in ties uh, above that moment. So, uh, you know, it'd be very interesting to see. I, uh, I I would love to know what it is as well. And and again, for the record, I I'm not predicting that Ohio State scores only 35 points. Uh, I I think just that you know that's kind of the magic number there. My my final score prediction is actually 42 28. Um, I think it's. I think it's going to be a mostly touchdowns kind of game. Uh, it just kind of has that feel to it for me. I, I think both offenses uh, have some flashes where they, they look really, really good. I think Ohio State's defense is better than Oregon's defense. Uh, and I think uh, the, the the giant crowd at the shoe is enough to help uh, help make this a, a, a relatively comfortable win. I, so I, I basically am saying the spread of, of 14 is going to be a push. Um these historical notes have nothing to do with, uh, you know, the actual guys on the field. But maybe if you're a fan, you're looking for good omens. A couple of fun things here. So the Buckeyes undefeated against Oregon all time, 9-0. Last time they played, obviously, the national title game. A couple of matchups in the Rose Bowl and Pasadena. Other than that, the Buckeyes have only gone to Eugene once, and it was back in the 60s. Oregon has come to Columbus a number of times historically, but Ohio State has never lost to the Ducks. Um the Ohio State Buckeyes have played particularly well against Pac-12 opponents. They actually won their last seven in a row against the Pac-12. Haven't lost to a team in that conference since 2009 when the Buckeyes lost to USC in a uh, fairly tight game, 18-15. Um, mentioned a couple times, this is the 100th season for Ohio State football at Ohio Stadium, 132nd season overall. So, uh, a big celebration coming on uh, on Saturday, and in their home open, Ohio State has won 40 of its last 42 home openers. The only uh, only losses in that stretch, the one I mentioned a little bit earlier, four years ago yesterday to Oklahoma, and then of course the game at home against Virginia Tech. But uh, obviously the Buckeyes went on to win the national title that season. So historically, home openers have been kind to the Buckeyes. They are hopeful that uh, Saturday is no exception to that. Guys, this has been fun. Appreciate your time and uh, really looking forward to Saturday's game. we got a boatload of content coming up, BuckeyesNow.com here, uh, certainly on game day, but 
uh, then in the uh, couple days to follow, breaking down everything we learned and uh, how we'll grade out uh, the Ohio State performances against the Oregon Ducks. For Tommy Zagorski, for Pat Cavanaugh, I'm Brendan Gulick. This has been a, another episode of Buckeye Breakdown. Glad to have you. We'll see you at the Horseshoe on Saturday. Buckeyes and Ducks, noon on Fox.